Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3 will begin, we'll begin in verse 3 in here in just a moment. Dustin, thank you for your leadership and I want to tell you guys your singing is an encouragement this morning as you declare these truths about the gospel to, to one another and praise to, uh, to our Lord Jesus. Rich morning. I recently ran across a list in Reader's Digest. I don't often read Reader's Digest, but I was in the dentist office or somewhere like that. And the list was titled, Unforgettable Life Advice in Just Six Words. And being someone who appreciates condensed wisdom, I kept reading and actually found some decent stuff. Here are a few that made the Reader's Digest list. The first, wanting less feels like getting more. Probably not good dating advice, but applicable in some other areas. Remember, French fries are gluten-free. For those of you into that, there's a guilty pleasure for you. Dreams don't work unless you do. Six words. Basic needs. Backbone, wishbone, funny bone. Fortitude, dreams, and a sense of humor, you might say. I like this one. Assume everyone is driving with kids. <laughs> that fits our Edmund context pretty well, I think. And then the last one, most powerful words, thanks and sorry. Some good advice in there for sure, but as someone who does a good bit of preaching, I very purposefully commit myself to not giving you advice. Advice isn't a bad thing per se, it's just not what I do, it's not my calling. And that's because life tips and success strategies, they aren't really the message of the Bible. Uh, the core message of the Bible is not advice. The core message of the Bible is news, good news. And what that means is preachers should stand before congregations as heralds announcing a message that is not from them, but a message that is from God. And coincidentally, and, and it is a great blessing as well, the message, the news that I get to herald is the best news in the world. It's the news that God himself broke into history to solve a problem that we could not solve, which is making us right with him. He reconciled us to himself. That is great news. And there's a lot wrapped up in accepting that news, but that is really great news. So it's important for you to distinguish the difference between advice and news. And that's because the essence of all other religions is advice, but the message of Christianity is news. Here's what I mean more specifically. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to have peace with God. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. Here's our advice. Here's our plan. Here's our program for how to be a decent human being. Now stick to it. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. This is not how you save yourself. This is how you have been saved. You see how Christianity is, is different from all other forms of spirituality? It's not advice, it's news. I'll illustrate it just one other way. The difference between advice and news is the difference between the box score and the Dear Abby column. The box score reports to me what has happened. Westbrook had 35 points on 12 for 20 shooting and 10 assists. 
That's fixed. It's real. It's over. There's nothing I can do to make the Thunderbox score any different. All I can do is accept it. It happened. It's done. Dear Abby says, Dear Lost and Broken, Your problem is with X and Y, and if you only do Z, then you might find happiness. See the difference? Religion is advice on how you must live to earn your way to God or find peace or some semblance of happiness. The gospel is the good news that you don't earn your way to God. Jesus has already made the way for you. And that is why I love our text for today. It is the very opposite of advice. This passage gives us the greatest truth in the universe. And in one place, it's actually condensed into three words. It's there in verse 5. It says, He saved us. The core of the Christian faith stated in three words, three syllables. He saved us. And then around those three words, the writer Paul gives what I think is the most powerful, condensed explanation of the gospel in the entire New Testament. I love these verses. In fact, it was because of this passage that I wanted to teach the book of Titus to you this summer. I love this passage. I've been excited about it for months. It's so rich. Let's read it together. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, I'll read through verse 8. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. So those three words in verse 5... I see those at the heart of this great passage. And you can see from your notes that I've built the outline around that declaration, He saved us. I'll be drawing out six angles on God's saving activity from these six verses. He saved us from, when, how, by, for, and unto. Begin with, He saved us from. We return to verse 3 this morning. I say return because you remember that we concluded our previous study by looking at verse 3. Last week, I told you that Paul was telling the believers there on Crete, the churches, he was telling them, remember your depravity. He says, remember who you were before God broke in and saved you. Remember how far from God you were. Remember how awful your life was. So as you strive to be these model Christian citizens, these men and women who submit to governing authorities, who are obedient, who are gentle and avoid quarreling, who are ready for every good work, remember, remember as the Spirit takes over and you look more and more godly and you take on the manner of life that Paul's describing there in verses 1 and 2, remember, don't get smug and hateful toward the unbelievers. 
Don't get judgmental and holier than thou. You can't do that. No, you have to remember that if not for the grace of God, that is you being described in verse 3. That's you. Foolish and disobedient and a slave to various passions. That, that, That is you, malicious and envious and hateful. That's what God has saved you from. The only reason you are different from the lost man is because of God's power at work in your life. It's not an inherent goodness. It's not a superior intellect that separates you from the lost world. It's not that, that, that you have good sense and that unbelievers don't. No, it's because God saved you. The great open-air preacher George Whitfield, a man under whose ministry thousands of men and women were converted during the First Great Awakening, while he was preaching one afternoon, he pointed out a homeless drunkard a man stumbling down the street as the crowd had gathered to hear Whitfield preach. And he said of the sorry sight, bringing the attention of the crowd to the man, he said, there, there but the grace of God go I. God has saved us from our depravity. I remember the first time I heard the concept of being saved. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. I I didn't know what it meant. I didn't understand it. Saved. Saved from what? Saved implies danger. I'm not in danger. Saved implies hopelessness. Saved implies life or death. Uh, It's all exactly right, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to quote him a lot this morning, so get ready. Spurgeon said this, Many people think that when we preach salvation, we mean salvation from going to hell. We do mean that, but we mean a great deal more. We preach salvation from sin. We say that Christ is able to save a man, and we mean by that that he is able to save him from sin and to make him holy, to make him a new man. That's why we must include verse 3 in our study of this passage. It tells us what we have been saved from. Now, verse 4, that is the start of a new long sentence. So verse 3 is the setup. We're lost in this desperate condition. And then in verse 4, light and hope and salvation comes. In verse 3, man is the chief actor. In verses 4 through 7, the focus is placed on the actions of God. And the sentence there in verse 4 starts with an important conjunction. It's the word but. And we see that word in, in, in any context, really. We tend to listen closely to what follows. Let me t- just give you an example. When someone says, hey, we really like your resume and your work experience, but... The buyer loves your house and wants to make an offer, but I like you and I think you're a really nice guy, but at that point you forget what is in front of the conjunction is what follows that really matters. And that's very, very true in Scripture as well. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear appeared. So when did he save us? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's when. That word appeared, we looked at it in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it was grace that appeared. And we said that that grace was pointing us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. When he appeared, grace appeared. And here again in chapter 3, it's doing the same thing. Christ is the personification or the embodiment of goodness and loving kindness. Those two things appeared when he showed up. Last week, I found myself in Hobby Lobby with my girls. They were doing some 
craft project, and I took them there to buy some supplies. And as we're making our way through the aisles, we stumble upon an entire section, fully appointed, recently stocked, of Christmas decorations. It was July 27th. And how be, this wasn't last year's stuff that they're getting rid of. They're already stocked. They're already gearing up. They're ready to go. And as I was thinking about this text and I was thinking about what I was seeing there, and Hobby Lobby's a great store and they have great owners and I'm not saying anything in relation to those things. But my thought was, as I was caught in this sort of retail moment, what are we celebrating? Are, are, are we celebrating the opportunity to decorate our homes? Maybe there's a more noble answer. Maybe we're celebrating family. Maybe we're celebrating the great deals that we get on Black Friday. Maybe we're celebrating the time that we get off of work or school. What are we celebrating? Well, you know what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the incarnation when we celebrate Christmas. The, the astounding reality that God sent his son to save us as one of us. Again, as Spurgeon said, the one who made man was made man. And when that happened, when Christ came into the world, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So to whatever those, uh, to whatever extent those attributes of God had been veiled or unseen, they were made completely known at the birth of Christ. From our text, that word goodness, goodness is the idea of God's overwhelming generosity. God is a giving God, which is why he gave his only begotten son. What a, what a profound manifestation of his goodness that God gave himself. So he doesn't just give us life and breath and air to breathe and shelter. He, he gives himself. And this term goodness is used all over scripture and most often it points to God's kind benevolence. The fact that he is a giving God. Loving kindness here is the word philanthropia. We get the word philanthropy from it. And it's a very rare word in the New Testament. It's a great word, though. It literally means pity, compassion, or eagerness to deliver from pain or distress because of strong affection. So it has this idea connected to it of strong affection, which means it doesn't have some self-serving component that's driving it. It's not pity out of a guilty conscience. It's pity out of strong affection. God is kind, and his kindness causes him to have intense feelings out of which he's compelled to act in compassion and in love toward his people. And God has always been that way. He's always been that way, and he manifests, manifests this character in, in thousands of ways all the time. But when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, it became overwhelmingly clear that the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God toward men was of a quality and a character that is beyond anything we could ever imagine or conceive of on our own. So that's when he saved us, when he sent Christ. Now let's look at how, verse 5. Two aspects to the how in verse 5. The first is negative, or how he didn't save us. The second is positive, how he did save us. Let's start with the negative. It says he did not save us because of works done by us in righteousness. 
So as plain as it could ever be stated, God does not save us by our works. Our works contribute nothing to our salvation. Let me say it this way. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin. Luther said, we no more earn heaven by good works than babies earn their food and drink by crying and howling. Spurgeon, again, if you can save yourself by your works, go ahead and do so, fools that you are. (laughs) For you might as well hope to drink dry the Atlantic. Works done by us in righteousness. That points to our adherence to the law. That righteous standard established by God. We don't save ourselves by living up to those things. And it's helpful to remember that it is Paul writing these words. And it was Paul who was the king of self-righteousness. Paul, he was the one with the resume of good deeds. And that's why when he was writing to the church at Philippi, we're going to be studying Philippi in the fall, I'm excited about it. And in Philippians chapter 3, I'll just paraphrase what he lays out. He tells that church, look, I was circumcised the eighth day. When it comes to ritual, I had the ritual. I was of the people of Israel, the race of the Israelites. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I had tribal privilege as well as racial heritage. When it comes to being a Hebrew, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. When it comes to the law, I chose to be a Pharisee because I wanted to take it to the most extreme degree. When it comes to righteousness, there wasn't one thing in the law for which anybody could hold me blamable. I'd done all of it. I'd covered every conceivable human base of righteousness, and then I realized, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that it was all worthless. And all those things that were counted gain to me, he says, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. The best of the deeds that I had done, Paul says, were nothing but trash. Scubalon is the word. It means manure, dung, rubbish, garbage, or filth. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. The Bishop J.C. Ryle said, Our best works are nothing more than splendid sins. That's the negative aspect of how he saved us, not by our works. Here's the positive. According to his own mercy. Mercy is just a magnificent word. It's the word helios. And it's by his mercy that God has saved sinners. We're going to talk about grace a little bit more in a few minutes. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is a kind of radical compassion. And God's mercy is always greater than your miseries. You have a, and I speak of myself in company with you, a gross amount of sin. You do. I do. But God has a greater amount of mercy, so much so that you and I, we cannot out God's mercy. Your actions toward God, your sin which offends God, your disobedience against God, it, it accrues and it accrues and it accrues against you. And God, in his holiness and in his justice, he is right to give you his wrath, to not save you. Just give you over to what you want, which is separation from him. But instead, he has mercy on you. And it's that mercy which saves you. So not according to you and your worthiness. 
but according to his mercy. So that's how. Now by. What, what are the means he uses to save us? Again, it's twofold. The first is regeneration. God saves us by regenerating us. And what does that mean? Well, the word washing is in there as well. You might think that's about baptism. It's technically not. This is not about baptism. It's about God granting new life. Regeneration is actually a compound word in the Greek. It's literally translated born again. So the washing of regeneration is what God does to make you and I spiritually alive. Again, verses 4 through 7, they have nothing to do with what we do. There isn't even a mention of faith in this passage. This is about what God has done to save us. And the action he takes to bring his saving power to our hearts is regeneration. James 1.18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That bringing forth is this idea of regeneration. Remember John chapter 3. John 3, when Jesus, one night in Jerusalem, he's, he's met by Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks him a question. He says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And what's the upshot of that answer? Why did that confuse Nicodemus? Because what it means is, just as you didn't do anything to be born physically, you do not do anything to be born spiritually. It is God who regenerates you. God who makes your heart alive toward Him so that you'll put your trust in Jesus. He is the life giver. He causes it so that you'll be born again. That is regeneration. The old, the old theologian John Murray, he said, We're not born again by repentance or faith or conversion. He says, we repent and believe because we've been born again. He's wanting that order to be very clear in our minds. And that new birth, it has this cleansing effect. With regeneration, there is a washing that deals with the guilt of sin that you know you have. And perhaps the reason some of you still feel the, the, the overwhelming guilt of your sin, you still feel the, the weight of your own Unworthiness. You still feel like you're stained or unclean. Perhaps it's because you've never experienced regeneration. You've never been born of God and cleansed through this new life. Then along with regeneration, he says that he saves us by the renewal that comes with having the Holy Spirit fill your life. This is just the, the next logical step. The effect of regeneration is new life. And the new life emerges, the new life that emerges out of new birth is enacted by the Holy Spirit filling you. So, so the Holy Spirit is the one who renews each of us. And since the Holy Spirit is God, this is not a halfway, kind of, sort of, partially accomplished renewal. This is a comprehensive kind of renewal. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We are whole new creations. We walk in newness of life. We've put on a new man. We, when, when he saved us, our life was totally renewed. It's not like it used to be in any way, shape, or form. We have a new identity. We have new longings, new aspirations, new desires, new passions, new affections. And that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says of the Spirit in verse 6, We were renewed by the Holy Spirit whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. 
Notice how the entire Trinity is involved in saving us. The entire Godhead is at work here. I was reading through something late last night, or early this morning, I'm not sure which, they were kind of blurring together, but it was from John Stott, and John Stott was commenting on this passage. And he said, we note what a balanced and comprehensive account of salvation this is. For here are the three persons of the Trinity together engaged in securing our salvation. The love of God the Father who took the initiative, the death of God the Son in whom, in whom God's grace and mercy appeared, and the inward work of God the Holy Spirit by whom we are reborn and renewed. A Trinitarian activity accomplished your salvation. If you doubt, if you struggle with assurance, don't doubt the work of our triune God who has saved you. All were involved in accomplishing your deliverance. But once again, we couldn't do anything to get the Holy Spirit on our own. You remember Simon. Simon, in the book of Acts, he tried to buy the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, may your money perish with you. It's not how it works. Nothing you can do to get the Holy Spirit. It's something that God pours out. And it tells us in verse 6 that he pours out the Spirit upon us richly. What a tremendous thing it is to comp just to contemplate what God has done. He has saved us by his kindness and his love, his mercy, his regeneration, his Holy Spirit. He did it all. And then verse 7 says what he did it for. He did it for our justification. So that being justified by his grace, that's how the verse reads. So by not giving us what we deserve, we can actually be Justified. What did we deserve? We deserve death. But the truth of the gospel is Jesus paid the price that we deserve, removing our sins from us, justifying us by his grace. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have our sin removed. We don't deserve to be imputed the righteousness of God. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be just before God. We don't deserve to come into his presence. We don't deserve heaven. But grace gives it to us because God's justice is satisfied in Christ. And therefore, he declares us justified. Justified. The story goes that there was a man in England who had purchased a Rolls Royce. And the man decided to take a holiday in Europe, and he wanted to take his Rolls-Royce with him to tour the French countryside. So he put the Rolls-Royce on the ferry and went across the English Channel. He was going through Europe, looking at the sights, when suddenly his Rolls-Royce broke down, and there was nobody there who could fix it. He sent a cable back to the company in England, and they flew a man over who did the repairs. He got the car running again, then left and went back to London. The man thought to himself, this is going to cost me a ton of money but they never sent a bill. When he finally got back to England, never having received a bill, he sent a letter to the company telling them what had happened, how the mechanic had come over and wondering what the charge was going to be. He got a letter back from the Rolls-Royce company saying as follows, Dear Sir, thank you so much for your letter. You need to know that we have no record in our files that any Rolls-Royce has ever broken down at any place, <laughs> at any time, for any reason. 
Folks, that's what justification's all about. You may fail, you may break down, but God Almighty looks down at you and says, there's no record that my child has ever broken down at all. That's what justification is. The, the, the sinful record is wiped away and you are credited with the perfect, eternally secure righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that being true, why would you ever appeal to your own righteousness? Why would you ever look to it to get you anywhere? It is the righteousness of Christ that is held out for us. That is the pathway of our justification. That is what is given to us by grace. We simply lay hold of it. If you come here today just trusting in your own doing, thinking that it's your effort or your accomplishment spiritually that is making you right with God, lay that down today. If you come here today maybe far away from that attitude, maybe your attitude is, man, I'm so far gone that there's no way I could be right with the God who made me. Either category, it's all of grace. The justification that comes to you is through his righteousness, not a righteousness of your own. Look to Christ. Trust him today if you never have. He saved us for our justification, but it doesn't stop there. He saved us for our glorification, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So as saved people, we possess eternal life in principle now. We are heirs, and we are not going to be written out of the will. We are written into the inheritance in blood. We don't question our status. We don't have to wonder if we're going to make it. We can look ahead with certainty that everlasting life is before us. And that life, that existence, is going to be a glorious existence. Full fellowship with God, fullness of joy, fullness of meaning, sinlessness, perfection, eternal, glorious life. He has saved us for that promise, for that hope. And we don't have to hope for it like we hope for more rain, just wondering whether or not it's ever really going to come. We hope for it with certainty in our hearts. In verse 8 comes a charge. What's the charge? Paul says to Titus, and he says to any believer who would read or hear this letter, I want you to insist on these things, which means preach this material, declare it. The verb tense causes this to say, don't stop insisting on these trustworthy statements. Perpetually share these truths. Preach it and preach it and preach it some more. We're a people with what I call gospel amnesia. We have a way of forgetting how loving and kind God has been toward us. We forget how secure we are in his hands, how trustworthy he is. We fail to recall what he has done in justifying us. Therefore, we need to be told and retold. And when we doubt, which we do sometimes... There need to be people in our midst insisting on the importance of these truths. We need to be preaching them to our hearts. 
This is why believing the gospel is a core value at Faith Bible Church. We never want to stop talking about it. We never want to stop insisting upon its importance. Because believing the gospel obviously is important for the one who is being converted, but it's important for all of us as we make way in the Christian life. And the truth is, in my life, a lot of the times, I'll have the gospel on audio. I'll hear it. I'll agree with it. I'll like it. But I have the world in front of me in HD video. And it overwhelms that truth of the gospel. The the power of the world's influence. What matters to the culture. Where it's going and how I am charmed by it. And how it is sort of in my face all the time can drown out that glorious audio. And so we need to be a people committed together to just cranking up the audio so that we'll never be in a place where we have despair because we have forgotten the gospel. Finally, he saved us unto something which is to say he saved us so that we would do something. And finally, this is where our actions come into view. God has carried the whole load up until this point in the passage. He's done everything. He's felt kindly toward us. He loved us compassionately. He showed us mercy. He washed us from our sins. He gave us new life through through regeneration. He put that Holy Spirit in us. He graciously poured out his righteousness upon us and made us heirs of of future glory. He did it all. But then he saved us unto something in verse 8. That we, so those of us who are on the receiving end of all these wonderful blessings and benefits, that we may be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Not because good works save us, not because they contribute to our salvation, but because, as the passage closes out, because they are excellent and profitable, not for us, but for others. What that means is people will look upon those in the church, if they're faithful to what's being exhorted here, people will look upon a fellowship like ours and they will say, there's something different about those people. I need to be around those people. Our world needs more of those people. Maybe I should be one of those people. Just reflecting even further, one way of asking the question is this, is if our church dissolved tomorrow, would any unbelieving people in our community even notice? Would they care? Would they say, crud, our community is is a more dismal place to live because that church, those believers are gone. Would they say, man, we're going to have to raise taxes because that church was so good at at taking care of and loving so many people. They were so devoted to good works. Would anyone say that? You see, good works, it doesn't mean we're committed to some thin, surfacey kind of morality. God didn't do all of this in us and for us so that we would be better at following some of the rules. He did it so we'd live lives that were a thousand percent different than the world around us. And what that basically means is that we live for his glory and not our own glory. That we'd find our security in him and not in ourselves or in our money. 
so that we'd strive after eternal things and not earthly things. He did it so we could live for the joy of others rather than being people who are constantly asserting our own rights and protecting our own momentary little bits of happiness. Paul's message here to Titus and to these Christian believers and to all the rest of us is is this. He's saying, look, you live in a godless, pagan culture. And so you're not to sit there in your smug self-righteousness condemning that culture. You are to be grateful that God in his sovereignty and grace has saved you. Don't you look at the unbelievers as the enemies, as the enemy of you. you. They are the ones that you are to reach in love. Your good works should benefit them because that's who you once were. He saved us. When his goodness and loving kindness appeared, he saved us. Therefore, who gets all the glory? He does. He does. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that a passage like this exists in Scripture, one that reminds and assures us of so many important things. God, we confess that we easily forget your goodness and your loving kindness, your justifying grace and mercy toward us. So thank you for words like this that that draw us back into your heart for us. God, I pray that we would be people that insist on these things all the time, encouraging one another with these truths. God, if there's anyone here that has never transferred their trust, put their faith in the Lord Jesus, God, I pray that they would do that today. They would wait no longer, but they would recognize that through your actions and your actions alone, you have saved us. So as we have sought to glorify you in this place, We now look to you to draw all men to yourself. Lord, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for this this people here that are just a rich encouragement uh, to each other. I pray that uh, as you've been glorified here in our gathering, you would be glorified in our scattering as well. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.